Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, for those of you who are watching, we're live on Bullhorn. That's uh, if you want to sign up and join us when we go live, you can go to bullhorn.fm slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. It's fun. This is the second time we've done this. Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling a little, little more capable, which is a great way to jinx myself. Right. And we worked out a few kinks, and um, it only took us like five minutes to get rolling yeah. here. So very good. Um, otherwise, it's just another show. Chris Klug is here, and we're going to talk to him in a bit. But first, it's time for everybody's favorite bit, especially mine. Better know framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? So I'm looking into uh, more closely into logging oh. and all the things that you can do with iLogger. And then um, App Insights comes up, you know, Azure Application Insights, which you kind of get when you create a, a, a web app anyway. Yeah, well, uh, it's an app on service, by default. Right? Yeah. An app service, yeah. So, uh, but I wanted to know, you know, what are the pros and cons of using iLogger versus Telemetry Client, which is hmm. the Azure way to log to um, to App Insights. So, this is a great blog post, uh, and I'll link to it on our page. But also, you know, because this is show seventeen uh, ninety, you can go to seventeen ninety me to get this blog post. Fixing logging issues in ASP.NET, telemetry client versus iLogger. So in a nutshell, iLogger by default without any extensions is kind of limited, mm-hmm. but it's what everybody uses, right? I mean, it goes anywhere. It does everything. It's like the Swiss army knife of loggers. Um, telemetry client solves some of these problems, but you're kind of locked into app insights. And so, you know. That's that's the downside. So he talks about some of the extensions to iLogger that you can use to fix some of the problems that happen at scale. It's really, really cool. Yeah. And it's mostly about detail levels, right? Like, do, do you have sufficient detail? Do you know what's going on? Can you yeah. diagnose what you need to find? Yeah. Right. Awesome. It's pretty cool. So know it, learn it, love it. And uh, who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, well, last time Chris was on was like seven years ago, and we were talking about Solid. And I was like, I could read some comments from this, but they're not really relevant and yeah. pretty old. Uh, but I did find a comment off of a show we recorded recently with uh, Richard Rukema. We were talking about moving to the cloud and infrastructure topics and so forth. And Kai Walter says this. He says, when I started with Azure Cloud back in 2015, I was lucky enough to have leapt directly to platform as a service with App Service, Azure SQL, and so forth, and left the not-so-good and old data center days behind me. In the enterprise space, waiting weeks or months for a slice of server. I like that. Slice (laughs) of server. Or even a new server really dampened any ambition to push out new business cases. With Azure Cloud, for the first time, I could bring up exactly the resources I needed for any exploration of a business case quickly. And then already back in conjunction with Visual Studio, I had a very good developer inner and outer loop at hand. So just that ability to experiment rapidly, right? Mm. And at low cost. Having looked at other cloud offerings over time, I now tend to agree that Azure is really stronger on the platform side and also with the whole developer ecosystem. Uh, which really gives me a faster time to market and productivity. Happy noises. 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's great to see people productive. And it, I do like that whole just ability to experiment, right? To light some stuff up for an hour, take it all out for a spin and go, okay, that's great. Shut it all back down again. Remember to shut it down. Mm-hmm. You'll find out later that month if you forgot to shut it down. <laughs> uh, and, and, and no harm done. Like you didn't have to buy machines. They didn't have to commit to anything. It's great. Uh, so Kai, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and make sure you have the appropriate level of detail. <laughs> Otherwise, we're not going to understand what the hell you're saying. And that brings us to our guest today, Chris Klug. He's been on the show before. Uh, you probably know who he is if uh, you hang out in the Twitters and all that. Chris works as a developer architect at Active Solution in Stockholm, working mostly with cloud-based solutions for clients in a wide range of domains. Lately, his contracts uh, have pulled him toward the DevOps area, working almost entirely with build and release automation, as well as infrastructure as code. Both were somewhat uncharted areas to him, which suited him just fine, as he loves learning new things and figuring out how to make them do what he wants them to. Man, that's like what I do when people say, now I know what to say when somebody says, hey, what do you do? (laughs) I like to learn new things, figure out how to make them do what I want them to do. Welcome. Well, that's kind of what we do. I actually, it's kind of sweet. What I tweeted the other day, I said, I, I always say that my wife has a real job, so she's a teacher. Yeah. Uh, and, right. and I always feel like I don't have a real job. I have a well paying hobby. That's uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I tinker with stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't gotten past the I drink and I know things phase, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> Oh, no, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the amount of exploration we do day to day and and so often, you know, I put to bed the things that people are asking of me that I've committed to. You get those done. It's like, okay, I got an hour. Mm. Which one of these explorations do I want to pick up? Right. I, I must say I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that area because uh, I'm, I'm getting to a point where I don't do a lot of stuff on my spare in my spare time, but I do actually... I'm lucky to have clients that need stuff that I want to work with. And my company is really good at finding work in areas I want to work with. So I get to play around while you're actually getting paid for it, which is really cool. Mm. So yeah, your employer's on board with this, like go explore and bring back. I mean, the main thing is you got to bring back what you learn to others too. Yeah. So it's partly, I do it as part of my job. So I actually have time set aside at my office to, to do this kind of stuff, like the, the MVP stuff, the, the blogging and the, the trying out new stuff. But also right. I say that I want to work with something. They try to find the client that needs what I want to work with. And then I get to play around with it. So if I want to do a project with, like I said, lately, I've been doing a lot of infrastructure as code and, and DevOps stuff. I said that about a year and a half ago. And, and last year and a half ish, I've, I've worked with building DevOps pipelines and infrastructure as code. Uh, and it, it's cool to do your little tinkering on your own. And I've learned a lot doing that but i feel like you don't actually learn it until you're forced to do something in a specific way because when i tinker with stuff as soon as i hit a wall or i hit a a speed bump i I tend to sort of say i can shift away from this and do something sort of work around it for my little demo but when a client comes and says i need this and you hit that speed bump then (laughs) 
you can't really just go and say can't do that. Right. It just forces you to do that more extra extra work. That sort of dilettante aspect. But I, you know, the other way I work around <laughs> that is I then I write it up as a session abstract, and somebody accepts yeah. it. It's like ah man, now I got to finish it. Now I you're. Got, I got to figure this out. This show is you and I having an argument in chat. Or not really an argument, but it's like we started ripping down the path of all these different infrastructure technologies. And at some point, I'm like, we need to stop and just record it. Because <laughs> it's certainly been a big topic over on Run As, as more and more of the IT folks are concerned about automation, too, about deployment engines and things like that. Mm. And there's too many choices. But it's, it's funny to come into the, the DevOps part of things from a developer and not an ops kind of way. Right. Because I look at it and... and I know that people are, it's, it's going to start a flame war and people are going to hate me and I'm going to be thrown off the Twitters and all of that. But <laughs> it is such a duct tape kind of thing. Uh, it, it feels like so much of the DevOps stuff is still sort of in a, in a duct tape. Let's, let's add a little bit of PowerShell here, a little bash script here and a little bit of this here and a little bit of that there to get it to work. Uh, and as a developer, it feels like I'd, I'd like a bit more sort of rigidity to it, uh, right. which is interesting because it, it's, it forces me to push the ops department at my clients as well a little bit in my direction, and they force me in their direction. But which to me, that's the healthy DevOps thing: is that the ops guys who are supposed to be caring about reliability, stability, and so forth are working with you, who is you know keen to innovate and roll new features and want to innovate faster. You know, like that's sort of the measure of your success. And you want to meet those two things in the ground. Because you innovate too fast, you break a lot of stuff and people are unhappy. Hmm. But if you're too rigid, you don't get anything new out the door. Very true. But it's it's still funny how much ops is de dependent on um, PowerShell scripts on somebody's local machine. Yeah. Uh, lacking source control. Uh, lacking. It's like this PowerShell script has to be run by this dude because he's the only one with the privileges to do that thing. And it can't actually be recreated because of X, Y, and Z. And we haven't ran it in the last nine months. So we don't know if it works anymore. Yeah. And it's, that's been absolutely a topic on run as, as, as this, when do you get to a point when your scripts can be run by other people? And then sort of next phase is when do you allow somebody else to modify them? Because as soon as you're going to put that code, just like us as developers, as soon as you put that code in somebody else's hands, you approach that code very differently. You know, because you know your thinking, but you care more about sanitation of inputs and error messages that are meaningful and like actually writing a better script, that mindset. And then throw in the, as soon as you get more and more person involved, source control is essential. Mm. I, I do still mean to write the book one day called IT When to Throw the Party. <laughs> right, because that moment where where you want to introduce source control into this stuff so that it's a common repository for people to use it and multiple people to work on it and so forth, like that's time for a beer because it's a big success. And that's what I've been doing for the last year and a half. Awesome, uh, <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah, because we've also when you when you take a lot of that stuff and then you add DevOps pipelines to it. So we we're working with Visual Studio DevOps uh, on both my previous projects or my current and my previous. Uh, which I guess is it's not GitHub Actions, blah, blah, blah. But anyhow, it still works. The cool thing with that is that it it's somebody else's privileges that you use. It's somebody else running the codes. We, mm -hmm. we know what they can do. We can control it. And it's not somebody modifying the code. It's actually somebody going in, clicking and saying, run this thing. And we know that it's repeatable. It's, it's like, it works. Uh, and that feeling when you, when you actually trust your pipeline to do everything is, is quite awesome. Um, being able to spin up and add, build your infrastructure with one click and work on it a little bit and then tear it down with another click or 
on every single pull request, there's a new environment up for you to play around with. So you can see that everything works. And when the pull request is done, it tears down your infrastructure and yeah. there's nothing left. Mm. It's it's fantastic. Well, and then this, I think, ties to Kai's comment at the top of the show. Is that sort of experimental? Okay, I, you know, I'm going to brand this. I've got this PR. I'm going to stick this over in a branch, build a compile and use the automated infrastructure code to literally set up an instance of the site with that feature in it and play with it for a while. Mm. Like I'm tired of reading line by line and being wrong anyway. Why don't I just run the thing? And the fact that the cloud lets me do that trivially, like I think that's the best case for this automated infrastructure as code is that I want to test it quickly. That and, and cost. Yeah, tearing down stuff that you don't need. So basically, we don't need to have the dev environment or the CD environment on uh, 24-7. It doesn't need to run weekends. It doesn't need to run evenings and nights. It, we can just tear it down, pull it back up again, and, and start working. Mm. Back before the cloud was public, you know, in the early Strange Loop days, we literally had a rack of pizza box servers that we sometimes used for load testing, sometimes used for instant you know, app testing, like literally all image-based uh, machines that you never knew what was loaded on those machines at any given time. Effectively, we were doing very clunky cloud stuff. But we owned that hardware. Like it, 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 what, it literally were, we had a spreadsheet of what was scheduled over the weekend. Like we had these big Hadoop analysis we wanted to do on data sets that over the weekend we'd flip them all over to these Hadoop instances and do the, and do the grokking on that. Hmm. But, you know, manual scheduling. Like it, it seems so archaic now. Mm. Yeah, and also the, another cool thing when it comes to cost of the cloud is that it's a, it's a linear cost. And, and if you can split your workload up and parallelize it, uh, it and, and it's the same cost to run a one machine, a one big machine as it is to run two smaller machines. And then all of a sudden you can spin up and use a thousand machines for a very short time and get your work done much, much, much faster. And the cost would be the same thing as running it on a, a, a huge machine for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it optimizes the way that you can work with things. And things like analyzing data uh, in, in big data clusters and everything is just the amount of raw power you get out of it is, is really cool. Awesome. Well, that's a lot of preamble, my friend. What techs <laughs> have you been using? So um, my personal th- opinion is that there are three main options today for infrastructure as code. Um, and that would be bicep slash arm. I, I'm not going to talk mention arm at all. Stay away from arm. Don't touch arm. Never, never touch arms. Okay. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Azure resource manager. Yes. Right. Azure resource manager templates uh, are, are basically being replaced by bicep, which is just a, a language that is transpiled on top of arm templates. So you right. can do the same thing. And then you have Terraform uh, and you have Pulumi. Pulumi. Uh, I think yeah. for, for Azure, those are your tr- three choices that you, you've got. Okay. Um, and I've played with all of them. Now, Terraform to me seems to be the old school way. Like before Azure really, was really a thing, you had uh, HashiCorp and, and building containers uh, you know, in an automated way. Like they, they seem to be the originator. Yeah, and you see that they they are they are all over the place. I see Terraform in, at a lot of my clients, and and it's it's cool because it's also it's cross cloud and it, it's it has something like fifteen hundred different providers where you can do different things with Terraform. It's not just Azure cloud stuff, mm. uh, but it's and, and it has some really cool benefits. But it, it's also a DSL uh, that is built on top of. SDKs built on top of the APIs that you call. So anything that changes in Azure 
needs to first be implemented in the Go SDK, and then it needs to be pulled up by by uh, Terraform, and they have to put it into their provider, and then the provider has to be released for the user. So it, it's never going to be day zero features available in in Terraform, but it is, and it it, it it's cool in a lot of ways. As I said, the big benefit is the the number of providers you've got. The the downside is is probably the DSL is is a little bit weird to be perfectly honest. Mm. Yeah. And it la- and like you said, it lags behind the latest feature of Azure, but how many zero day Azure features are you implementing anyway? Well, that's the thing. I I I agreed with you up until last year when I started working on it for real with a client. Right. And there were actually during the last year several locations when we had to sit and wait. We had to implement our own custom f- stuff on side on the side to support certain features because they weren't available yet. Yeah, so you um, have empirical experience now that Yes. You see, you, especially if it's a a problem you had with a feature you're already implementing, it's like, well, that's supposed to show up in this next iteration, so mm. we'll just wait. And then it shows up, and then the provide the Azure Corp ARM provider isn't supporting it yet. Yeah, well, it was. It's actually it, one of the things that comes to mind is they they introduced uh, soft deletes in Key Vault, and we were using Key Vaults for a lot of things. And right when they started adding soft deletes and we started tearing things down and removing keys, they weren't actually removed. So we weren't allowed to add them back in again. Uh, and the, the, the support for handling soft delete wasn't there. So we had to build us around that. And then they added a feature that supported it and that didn't actually work. So we had to keep our clunky CLI based thing on the side. So, so yeah, even if I agree with you, how many zero day things do you use and how up to sort of how soon do you need your features? Normally, I would say that's not a problem, but having run into it several times last year, um, it is actually a problem. Well, and that's a gorgeous scenario. They change a feature, they change its behavior, like going from everything's a hard delete, everything's a soft delete, and now your existing code stops working. Yes. That's awful. Not to mention that there were there were actually quite a few regression bugs in, in when we were using it as well uh, at the beginning of last year where... Oh yeah, this worked in the previous version. Then we just upgraded the provider, and it started failing again. Uh, uh, that got better along the way, uh, and I'm not gonna. It's not bad. It's now. It's, I'm, I'm sounding like the guy that says, "Don't use Terraform." There's nothing wrong with Terraform, but no. you need to know the limitations. Um, and to me, that that is a little bit of a limitation. It would also strike to me that Terraform is a tool you you should be keen on. A, if you're an early adopter, but also your cross cloud implementations because there's great aws implementations and gcp implementations in in uh, in terraform as well pulumi as well does that right and almost 1500 1500 other ones P- doesn't pulumi also do cross-cloud stuff yes yeah pulumi does too but pulumi's uh, ter- pulumi's provider support is, is still fairly small or compared to terraform it's tiny because it's a very new product but mm. as i may i do a talk about comparing the the, the three different ones and it's Yes, the 1500 one on, on Terraform is Im- impressive, but the question is how many of those are actually really good? Uh, mm. How many of those are actually really maintained? Mm, right. um, I talked to my, my yeah. colleague that I worked with last year. She's, she's using Terraform for a new client now and they were doing DevOps stuff. So there's a DevOps provider for Terraform so they could set up the rules and things like that in, in DevOps. And it was missing features, and she looked at it, and it's like, it hasn't been updated in six months. Uh, and since Microsoft has basically put DevOps on sort of a 
not sunsetting it, but it, it's sort of, it's not mm -hmm. the main focus. The main focus is GitHub now. They're, they're not really working on DevOps. So getting more features into the Terraform stuff is not going to happen that much. And then yeah. if that's like that for DevOps, then the question is, what's it like for the 1500 other providers out there? Yeah. And how, yeah, how many of those providers are checklist items? One yeah. version enough to say we support that and never yeah. touched again and, and just not that good. Like, it, it's no different than looking at any open source project. Like, who are the contributors? Well, how's it been maintained? That matters. And all the providers are open source. So the big ones like Amazon, Azure, uh, GCP, they, they are all um, managed by Microsoft and Amazon and Google as open source projects. Right. So the other 1,500 providers they've got, or 1,450 or whatever, um, they are also maintained by open source stuff. So it might be one of those... I'll do a little implementation for my thing and I'll publish that and then it's just going to drop away so it's not properly maintained. So I don't care about the 1500 providers. I, I care about, like you were saying, Carl, the, it supports the big cloud providers and it supports the bigger features uh, or the big services. And that's kind of the main important thing. Right. And, and Pulumi does the same thing. Yeah. No, that, and that's a, that's, I mean, obviously you're going to go a long way with just Azure, GCP, uh, AWS. <clears throat> but, I think all people want this same kind of infrastructure as code on-prem. How well does stuff like the Terraform work for an on-prem implementation? I think it works. I've never done it, but mm -hmm. apparently it works sort of well-ish. If you've got if you've got something on-prem that's built on a standardized on-prem management system, I think there are pretty good providers for on-prem stuff as well. I do right. know that we have clients that do on-prem stuff with Terraform, and it works quite okay. Okay. Because Bicep is Azure only. Yes. You know, sort of hundred percent. That's just that's all you get. Um, yeah, pretty much. Because it, it, in the end, it, it's Bicep is a is a domain specific language on top of ARM. So you actually transpile it to ARM templates, and ARM is Azure Resource Manager. So it's kind of stuck there, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's actually transpiled before you send it to Azure. So Azure hasn't changed. Azure doesn't support Bicep. Azure doesn't know what Bicep is as such. It only accepts ARM templates. Right. Bicep is built on top of that. Bicep is a way to make ARM templates without having to stab yourself in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> that was my experience. ARM templates is, is templating done better than, hey, let's use JSON. Yeah. But still, I, I find that ARM templates read better than they write. Like writing them is agonizing. But they're actually pretty legible. Like you can figure out what it's about, which is nice. But you have to scroll for like 45 minutes oh, yeah. before you figure out what it does because it's, it's so verbose. Yeah. Well, you have to read for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where I think Bicep does it really, really nicely. Since it's built on top of, of ARM, it means that you can actually, you can go and look at old ARM templates. You can look at go, old code examples because you can still get the ARM syntax and you can quite easily convert that into bicep syntax as well if you want to have something from an example. And you can even transpile ARM into bicep automatically so you can get bicep files if you have investment in ARM today. That's cool. So you've already gone down the path. It's like, make me bicep code. I thought YAML was hard <laughs> and annoying. Yeah. Okay. No, 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 no. YAML is a whole different story, Carl. That, 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 <laughs> no, no, I know. That's I'm... not like stabbing yourself in the eye. That's like poking yourself in the eye and then removing the eye and then keep poking you in the other <laughs> eye while burning your tongue. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad I get some, I get some, uh, you know, justification for my annoyance at YAML. I, <sighs> I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to hate it, but I'm sorry. Yeah. I, it sucks. <laughs> 
The amount of time I spent on debugging DevOps t- pipelines because I've had one indentation wrong. Yeah. And the exceptions you get out of it is also, oh, yeah. They make a lot of sense once you have found the issue because you realize that something at the, is at the wrong level. Mm. But the error messages you get are not going to tell you what you've actually done wrong because there's nothing to tell you what's gone wrong. It's, yeah. I hate, I hate YAML. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most of the YAML I'm living with these days is in Home Assistant. So, a, I'm already insane, uh, but but B, you know, Visual Studio Code makes it suck less yeah. because it's really good about highlighting the indentations with color so that you can see this is how you screwed it up. I don't know. YAML seems to me like a language that some other language should be writing. You know, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Completely agree. Or some tool should be whatever. Yeah. Yeah, saying that it's better than JSON because it's much easier to read and it's more legible for a human being. Got to yeah. say that. Might be true, but human beings really suck at indentation. So, yeah. 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 What if we took JSON, removed some of the curly braces, and made it white space sensitive? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's great. do that. <laughs> well, if we're looking at weird syntax, I can also go back. There's one thing about Terraform, which I find funny. Whenever you talk about DSLs, there's always some interesting choices being made. It's like the choice of using YAML for some things, JSON. Terraform has a really cool thing. They don't have an if statement, so you, you can't do conditional resources. Mm. So you can't say, create this resource if this is true. Right, right. And why is there not an if statement or a conditional statement in, in Terraform? No, the reason is that there is a loop statement so you can do a for each, and you all know that for each, zero or one is the same thing as if, right? Right. Uh, so if you for each over something that is an empty array or a zero index, zero array or a one array, that's the same thing as an if. Mm-hmm. So that's the conclusion that they've got. We don't need if because we've got for each loops. Yeah, sure. Which is fantastic because it also makes your resource an array instead of an, a single item and things like that. Yeah. So there's, there's interesting things in everything. Oh yeah, no, lots of power to it and, and lots of uh, good fun to it. And we should take a break right now. So, uh, let's do that for just take a brief pause for this very important message. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Spot by NetApp. Spot provides a comprehensive suite of cloud ops tools that makes it easy to deliver continuously optimized and reliable infrastructure at the lowest possible cost while removing a lot of the manual and time-consuming tasks out of managing cloud infrastructure at scale. Imagine automating your infrastructure to proactively meet the needs of your applications as opposed to reacting to the constantly changing needs of your applications and developers. Imagine leveraging the latest in machine learning and automation to scale your infrastructure using the most efficient mix of instances and pricing models, eliminating the risks of over-provisioning and expensive lock-in. Imagine running reliable applications, cutting cloud costs significantly, and making life easier for DevOps teams so they can focus on faster deployments, reliability, and a seamless user experience. From cost management to infrastructure automation and CD to running serverless Spark on Kubernetes, Spot ensures you maximize your cloud investment. The end result is simply more cloud at less cost. Discover how the most innovative companies from cloud-native growth machines to forward-thinking enterprises are automating, simplifying, and optimizing their cloud infrastructure with Spot by NetApp. Check them out at spot.io slash rocks. That's spot.io slash rocks, where you can find more information, 
request a demo, or give it a try by starting a free trial. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yo. Hey, we're talking to our friend Chris Clegg a little bit about this sort of infrastructure as code thing. And I think we, you know, we've sort of nailed Terraform as sort of the originator down pretty good. Bicep, I get that it's a friendlier way to recruit, to create and maintain ARM templates. And I appreciate that it's bi-directional, that I've already spent time on ARM templates. I can pull them up into Bicep and have something a little more palatable. Uh Anything else? I mean, what about keeping up with features? Like, they, they, I guess they just have a problem because they're just working against ARM templates anyway. Yeah. So, feature-wise, Bicep is is one hundred percent day zero for everything. Basically, so as long as ARM supports it, which it does, because our the resource manager internally has to support it for it to work. So, you will have all the new features um, in in Bicep. Right. Yeah. So you, you're going to be always up to date. What about the source control aspects? Like. I can put this in GitHub. I can manage it the same way. Like none of those problems. No difference at all. It's just it's it's there's there's an interesting thing with if you look at Terraform versus Bicep. Bicep is actually quite easy to to just source control because it's just dot Bicep files. Right. Um. And and you just run them and you can run them using PowerShell or Azure CLI and it's built into the system. It transpiles it to ARM. It pushes it to Azure. Everything is awesome. Um. But Terraform actually is a little bit more complicated in that case. You can t- you can put your Terraform files into source control as well, but Terraform also requires you to have state. So mm. Terraform saves state of what happened last time you ran your Terraform script, so it knows the changes from last time to this time, so it knows what to change. Bicep doesn't have that sort of, in quotes, limitation because it looks at the real world all the time. So you send your Bicep files to Azure, Azure compares what you're trying to do with the way the world looks at the moment and then makes changes. Uh, so it's actually easier to, to run Bicep files uh, with the downside that you don't have state, so you can't actually delete stuff. So Bicep and ARM doesn't support delete everything in this ARM template or in this Bicep file, but in Terraform, you can actually go and say Terraform destroy, and it, it destroys and removes all your resources that it created previously. So it's much easier for you to remove an infrastructure with Terraform because of that state. Right. Uh, but, but there's also this. Where Bicep, you would literally have to write the commands to destroy all the things. Hope you remembered them all. Well, you normally try or generally try to put them all in the same resource group. Right. And then you delete that one resource group or and two resource groups or whatever you've got. But once you start mucking about with having sort of core templates where you have shared infrastructure and then you may, because you often end up with infrastructure that's at least two levels. You have this lower level, which is core infrastructure, which is your SQL server and your app service plans and your Redis caches and all that stuff. Please don't delete. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then you have your apps infrastructure on top of it, which relies on the, the core infrastructure that you set up. If you happen to put those in the same resource group, which happens once in a while, then you can't actually delete them that easy either. Right. Okay, I pre- I appreciate that. And I think we're sort of getting into the into the I think the most interesting aspect of infrastructure as code, which is this most of the time where I see like you were talking about this earlier, Chris, people don't have a plan. It's just duct tape and bailing wire. But even when they have gone down this path where they have a very nice automated script, for the next app, they start from scratch. There's no reuse of any of this code between projects. Maybe cut and paste, but that's about it. And and I and I think that's really interesting because it's hard from an architect's perspective to say, hey, we need to put a policy in place. 
right? That we always, you know, set it up this way. Like we keep, we keep all the app stuff in a resource group, like those kinds of things and make it easier for people to do the right thing, to have sort of base templates, even in, uh, I would like enforced rules so, so that you can't make mistakes. I don't want my infrastructure as crowd implementations to have the please be more careful next time outcomes when, when you accidentally deleted a production database. Yeah, completely agree. And it, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, admittedly, this is an audio show, but we've got video for Bullhorn right now. And the look on your face is like, think the dude's done it, been there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think we've all done it. I think we've all deleted that database. We've all done that, that thing we shouldn't have done. Um, which is why I'm being a consultant, continuously being let into new systems and, and helping them out. I'm always terrified of, of touching production environments. I did a release the other day. It, it, my new, my client is pretty new and I was sitting there doing some release work and I, I released some stuff to stage. Um, actually I released to test and, and I look at the release pipeline and all of a sudden my, my demo, my test code is going into stage. Hmm, right. And I, I'm, I'm sitting here basically going, OMG, what, what just happened? Mm. I'm pretty sure I didn't do that. I was, I went onto Slack and I'm, I'm really sorry. I've destroyed stage. Something went through. I'm, and then somebody comes and says, no, no, it's one of the other developers actually released it for you. Mm. And I'm like, wasn't me. <laughs> but that, that feeling of, of like dread once you realize that you're a, you have just done something really, really bad. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's the, to me, one of the main reasons of having everything automated. I, I want to make sure that everything is automated so I can't destroy anything. And I want to make sure that nobody ever gives me access to release to production. Uh, that, that should be sort of guarded by somebody with a higher salary than me, uh, who's about to lose their job if they do it wrong. Hey, and we want to encourage people watching on Bullhorn to, uh, ask questions and, um, you know, maybe we can poll them, Richard, and ask yeah, people. Yeah, I was thinking about a poll. You know, you what know, do they use for? What's your DevOps strategy? Item one, word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there are a couple of levels. You've got DevOps strategy. We don't have any. Yeah. You've got the, the notepad document on somebody's machine or somewhere in a readme.md file in source control with all the steps you need to run. And then you have the, we have all the PowerShell scripts you have to run yourself manually. Mm -hmm. And then you, you come into the, it's automated and it just flows. Yeah. Yeah. And we've done them all. I think we've all been through all levels of them. And yeah, I know which one I prefer. Well, when you have that automation, and again, I'm not, I don't know if there's anybody who does it for every project consistently. Like I see there's a Nirvana out there, but when you have it working well for one of them, the cycle rate, the ability to build features, and it like you talk about developers having a great time. <laughs> like I really love what I'm working on. And part of that is I get my code out in the field and I get feedback from it. And such a powerful thing. But I, I, I really want to spend the last half of the show talking about the Nirvana part. Is there a strategy where we make building pipe, like part of that, I'm starting a new app and they get the pipeline for it right away. Then we, and we do all the right things off the bat. Like that, is I just and then I wonder if Pulumi is the thing. You know, we've had Joe Duffy and Luke and so forth on to talk about it, but it's because it's a richer language. I just thought you're gonna be able to do more conditionals. You're gonna be have reusable infrastructure as code. Right, yeah. Chris? You, right? Yeah, yes, yes, no, it's true. <laughs> uh but it's still something that needs to be written. Yeah, I think the 
I think the, the policy stuff that you were talking about of saying that in our business, we do it in this way, that's much easier to enforce with Pulumi because you're writing code. You can share code. You can share it as NuGet packages. And you can say, when you build build infrastructure for our company, you don't use the raw Pulumi stuff. You use this NuGet package or you use this NPM package where we have pre-packaged everything so it's in, in our format. But it needs to be built. Uh, it's It's still... It's still a step to build that. Uh, when you said the nirvana of getting pipelines built, actually, I think Microsoft is somewhat on the way because if you right-click publish in Visual Studio, um, I don't run Visual Studio anymore. I don't only run Visual Studio code, but somebody told me that when you run Visual Studio, you, you do right-click publish to Azure. Once you've gone through all the steps of, of doing right-click publish, it actually asks you if you want to do a right-click publish or if you want to set up a DevOps pipeline for it. So they will actually take your steps and turn it into a very, very simplistic, but still a pipeline for you. Right. Um, I think that is step one, because once you've got that initial pipeline going, then you sort of go, oh, we've got all these automated tests. They should probably run as part of the pipeline. Well, we have the pipeline. It's a YAML file. We just add a task in there and our tests are now running automatically. Yeah. It's much easier to add those incremental little steps than, than coming and having a blank piece of paper and say, hey, we need a DevOps pipeline, go and build it, and, and we need these 1,500 steps as part of it. I think the path to Nirvana is automating that first one and then slowly let people build it as, as that you progress through the project. Yeah, I, I get your point that you don't want to put so many barriers in place that nobody gets it done. Yeah, You don't want to make it too complicated, but you want the default template to be the right thing so that you can keep adding to it over time. You, you, what you don't want to do is go from scratch each time and 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 make the, all the mistakes each time. No, it, it takes a lot of time as well. Um, and yeah, you do do a ton of mistakes. I uh, and, and you find out a lot of things. Another interesting aspect of, of infrastructure as code is that you get nothing for free. Right. Um, and by that, I mean, if you go into the Azure portal and you set up a resource, they generally, through the portal, give you all of these sort of reasonable defaults. You fill in a few things and they will add a bunch of stuff for you automatically. Once you go to infrastructure as code, all of a sudden it's more of a, I need to remember to set this thing here and I need to change that thing there. And, oh, if if I'm doing a Linux app service plan, I also need to remember to set the is reserved, inst- reserved to true. And then I need to change this setting over here. Uh, all of that stuff takes time to figure out. And you do that for one project. And then six months later, you go on to a new project. If you haven't written it down or created a package that you can reuse, right. you're going to have to go through that once more and figure it out again. You know, Thomas Betts in the chat made the point that it usually takes a team that's dedicated to make it happening for everyone. Do you do you find that to be true? Yeah. So the last, last client, current client, I have come in together with call two different colleagues in the different projects uh, where we have been this pre especially the one last year we were dedicated there to get their pipelines up and running and get their entire existing infrastructure into infrastructure's code so their devs would keep on working with building features and building up stuff and we were two consultants that would go in and build the pipelines and build the infrastructure's code stuff because they didn't have time to do it and yeah i do believe you need to have dedicated people that are saying that this has to be done and they have to sort of sit down and do it and and 
put in quite a lot of time because if you think it's something that we can do sort of with our left hand on the side of what we're doing right now, that's not going to happen. It needs to be dedicated and we need to say this is, we need this feature. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and again, it's like, and templating it so it's like you can't build a project. You can't get started without including this as part of your process. No different than you You have to start with source control. Like all of those, there's these base elements. This is one of the base elements. But make it simple enough that it's not a barrier to getting started either. No, actually, a very simple way to do that is don't give your developers access to your Azure resources. Right. If your developers yeah. don't have contributor access to your subscription, but they have to use service principles that go through your DevOps pipeline or your GitHub Actions, and that's the only thing that has permissions to actually create things. Now, developers are going to hate me, but it it forces you to go through infrastructure's code to set it up, because as soon as you let people go into the portal and say, I am just going to, (laughs) then you've started down the slippery slope of I'm just going to set up a full environment. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's this is also like the pit of success that these are all the right things to do so that we're not trapped. I don't think we've given Pulumi enough love here, friend. Like, what do you think of Pulumi? <laughs> Pulumi is awesome. I I I love Pulumi. Um, I do I do talks on Pulumi. Uh, I've been doing talks on Pulumi for quite a while now. Um, I love it. Um, so for the people, I, I guess there are lots of people out there that probably haven't looked at Pulumi. Mm-hmm. Pulumi is Infrastructure's code using code, like real code. You write your code, C-sharp. you write your C-sharp, or in my case, I use TypeScript because okay. uh, it's slightly more flexible and I'm used to TypeScript. Uh, but there's also Python um, and Go, I think. Uh, so there are a couple of different languages you can choose. And and yes, with the fact that it is proper C-sharp or proper code, you can have all of these really cool conditionals and you can have all of these, like all the coding things. I love showing off how you... You can, for example, create a class where you say, I want to have a new web app, and then you get a web app. And then on that that instance, you can have add application insights, and it has the functionality to add application insights. And then, oh, by the way, also dot add CDN, dot add custom domain. And it, it in the end, it just creates resources and infrastructure as code. But when you start looking at your code, it's it's literally you look at the lines of code you got in your, your sort of main file, your program CS. It says new web app, web app dot add CDN, web app dot add custom domain, web app add application insights. All of that is so much more readable than DSL blobs of resource, my web app, long name of thing in bicep, version of template or API to use, blah, blah, blah. It's just much more readable. Yeah. And also they... They don't lag behind like Terraform does. So in the new version of, of Pulumi, they, they actually generate their SDK based on the open API spec from the Azure API. So they will be able, they can generate the SDK nightly based on the current state of the API. So whenever there's something new that comes out through the web API, they can generate a new SDK and you're up and running with a new feature. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're staying up to date, at least for Azure. I don't know the, have you, done any Pulumi against AWS? I, I'm Azure only, actually. But, okay. but I, I think they do generate... So I think there's a native, what they call a native provider for, for Azure, AWS, and GCP. So I think all three of them have sort of auto-generated stuff from the API. It's not zero day in the same way as, as uh, Bicep, in, I think, because I think there's a, sometimes there's a lag between 
the web API, the API, what you can do with API and what you can do with ARM. Right. Because uh, ARM has some other stuff. So it's not always 100% up to speed. But it's really cool as well with automating it, just as with, with Bicep and ARM, Pulumi now with the automated, genera- automated generation of the, the, um, the SDKs, it means that their code is identical to the property names in Bicep and ARM. So if you look at the Bicep template and you see sort of find an example of how to do something in Bicep, it is the same property names in Bicep as it would be in Pulumi. So once again, they're aligning it with the standard, which makes it really easy to, to sort of get information from Bicep and convert it into um, uh, Pulumi. Right. Yeah. So they, again, very Azure centric for better or worse. And of course, the Pulumi guys are all ex-Microsoft guys, right? Like <laughs> they really are funded by a uh, uh, a venture capital firm run by a Microsoft guy. Mm. <laughs> so, hmm. There's a plan but, here. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah. And they, they're also really cool. They they answer quickly on, on Twitter if you have any questions. Nice. They're, they're really active in the community. So I, I enjoy working with that. And it also opens up an, an interesting other thing that you don't think of initially, but I talked to some people at the office. They're doing it with a tool called Farmer. But with C, with type or uh, Pulumi being written in C sharp, mm-hmm. we can do reflection, right? So we can reflect on top of our code. So what they had built in Farmer, which I te- I tried it out in in Pulumi and it works fine. I built a C sharp application or C sharp Pulumi application that would actually take my application and use reflection to find classes inside of my application. So for example, say that you you're using Azure Service Bus and you have different messages that are sent on to different topics, I could build an application that reflected over my application to find all classes inheriting it from message or whatever. And then based on that, say, oh, I also want to generate topics for all of these things. So the developers don't have to sit there and generate topics for their new messages. They just create a new message class, and all of a sudden, it pops up as a topic the next time they deploy. So we can sort of go... We can inverse it and say we will build infrastructure as code based on what code is in our code. <laughs> right. So read or the code first, then ask where the infrastructure should go. Yes. I, cool. And I, I grabbed the link for Farmer, but we should probably talk about this a little because this is pretty cool. Right? I mean, this idea of I love the term compositional IT. I haven't worked with Farmer at all. Right. Um, as far as I understand, it's, it's F sharp based, which is where I'm lost. <laughs> Oh yeah, but but out, that speaks to its culture then too. Yes, right. That that this sort of functional mindset, that, that style of expressiveness. Okay, that puts it. That, that sort of. And now I know how I want to approach this. But that's really cool. I'll, you know what? I'll hunt down a show for on farmer if people want it, uh, because it it is really interesting to see a ways that folks are taking this on. Yeah, it's, it's cool to see those different ideas. As I said, the, the idea of reflecting over the code was something that came out of a colleague of mine. And I, I immediately thought that was really cool. And I thought maybe I can build a framework on top of that to auto-generate things and use attributes and everything. And then I did a, a, a four-hour stint of just trying how it works and figured out that it doesn't work at all. Uh, but some some reflection is good, but you can't reflect everything. Uh, right. That's not going to work. But a, sort of a, an extra tool can be cool. Yeah. And we have a question from the peanut gallery here. Thomas Betts asks, where do you store the infrastructure code? Is it within the same repo as the app? Does it live side by side in a separate repo? It's a good question. It's a very good question. 
Let's let's not answer. Yeah, it I don't know. I, don't I, answer it. I would <laughs> uh, I would make that decision it, it, depending on what I'm doing. I, I my so far I, my opinion would be from what I've learned, what I've figured out so far is some infrastructure lives in a separate repo for mm-hmm. sort of, as I mentioned the core or common infrastructure like the the underpinnings mm-hmm. the the app service plans the SQL servers the the things that my apps my applications build on top of right that would probably go into its own repo unless you're running a mono repo of course but I would put that in a separate repo with its own pipeline and all of that because. Uh, it, it's a little bit dangerous because if you muck about too much with that, uh, you might actually destroy stuff built on top of it. So it needs to be very well documented and well handled. Mm-hmm. Probably secured but, too, that regular yes. app devs don't can't modify that. No, we ended up doing a, a pull request flow for that in my previous client. So anything that needed to go in there, there would have to be a PR. And then you need to also make sure when you run that, we were running Terraform. Uh, certain changes in Terraform causes it to recreate the resource. Uh, uh, you need to make sure that it doesn't recreate, but actually update the resource, because if you recreate it, anything built on top of it will go away. Um, so it's, it's it's scary with that common stuff, but that, go in my mind, goes into its own re- repo. But then infrastructure for your application should probably go in together with your code, together with your deployment pipeline. Mm-hmm. Because when you make a change to your application and all of a sudden you need a Redis cache or you need some extra infrastructure, you want to put that infrastructure into your infrastructure code uh, and into your your pipelines and get everything running in the same commit. You don't want to go and commit your code in one place and say, oh, yeah, I, I just committed my code over here and now I need a Redis cache. So now I need to go to this other repo and add the Redis cache. And, and if they happen to be automatically built, then... I need to make sure that I check in and commit the code to the e- the infra repo before I do the application repo and all of that. If it's all in the same repo, you've got a nice trail. It's like, okay, sure. here's a PR, here's the infrastructure we need, here's the pipeline changes we need, here's the code changes we need for the application to run. PR completed and approved. It goes in, it builds, it releases everything as one package and your, your infrastructure is updated together with your application code. Yeah, Thomas comments here. I've had teams that want to keep it in one repo in the spirit of DevOps, which I love that. Isn't that a song by Rush? (laughs) Um, But changes to the infrastructure should be far less frequent than app changes and should, and it should kick off a different CI CD pipeline. So, yeah, I I'm torn because I agree with changes being far less frequent. Definitely. Once you've stabilized your application, you just build new features. The infrastructure's code is not going to, it's not going to change very much. Mm-hmm. But having it on a separate CI/CD pipeline, I'm not so sure. I actually like having it in the same CI/CD pipeline because it means that if you do a PR environment or whatever, the infrastructure is there, it's easy to maintain. Uh, you, you know that the code works together with the current infrastructure version that's checked mm-hmm. in. Because if you if you let the versions diverge and you go, oh, we just released app version 1.4, but there was a bug, we have to roll back to app version 1.3. Oh, version, app version 1.3. We need to make sure that that also works to get, has the right infrastructure version, blah, blah, blah. Putting it in the same thing actually alleviates a lot of those. How do we make sure that the, the infrastructure is up to speed with the uh, application? In my opinion, it does feel like you, you end up with in two places, like the resources that are specific to the app that you want to have be created and destroyed as you're creating and destroying the app. They're there. The resources that it depends on that are cross-cutting or, you know, are really IT supervised, A, 
they shouldn't be able to lead him at all, full stop. Uh, and But you have sort of hooks, ways to call into, and now I need to instantiate a database in this store, like that that sort of thing. Uh, so that it's it's safer to do. And even stuff like the Reddish Cache, I think, you know, you probably have controls around that as well. So you want to be able to poke into it. I guess it, it depends on how complicated the environment is. I mean, obviously, you're working with some pretty big organizations where they have more policy around that sort of stuff. Well, it's it's also interesting that, hey, let, let's put the infrastructure's code in, in a separate repo. It, it feels a lot like let's put up one repo for the ops guys and one repo for the dev guys. Right. Uh, which means that we're back into dev and operations and we're not doing dev ops. Isn't the whole idea with dev ops <laughs> that we should be all working together and trying to get stuff running together? Well, I think if they at least talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, be good, friendly. Good start. But I mean, I've had enough experience making mistakes. It's like, listen, I don't want to leave privileges, please. <laughs> right. Like, cause then <laughs> yeah. it could be my fault. So, right. you know, that's actually a good point. Uh, my friend Jacob, who I, I do a workshop on infrastructures code as well. He, he, he mentioned and something we actually forgot in my previous project. You can put locks in on Azure resources. So you can actually lock a whole resource group and say you can't delete it. Uh, and then basically your pipeline will unlock the resources, run the infrastructure's code pipeline, and then lock it once again so that nobody can delete your production environment by mistake. Not saying that that has ever happened, but it has happened. Right. That, and that's where you want those barriers there, right? Like you don't, you, you know, that's what your root cause analysis comes down to is that typically too many privileges. Like you want bump stops for things that are potentially hazardous. And popping a dialogue that says, are you sure? Not good enough because people learned a long time ago, just click on whatever makes the dialogue goes away. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, the older I get, like if you'd asked me five or 10 years ago, I, I think I want to have uh, like admin privileges everywhere because it alleviates a lot of my problems and it makes sure. life easier and it makes me more productive, I'm faster. I kind of agree. But today when I go to a client and they give me admin privileges on day one as a consultant, I get weary of, of how their environment actually mm. works. Um, I've been to clients' places where on day one, they've given me a machine with admin privileges to everything in their Azure subscription for not only my project, but every project in the, in, the, in this whole. And now it's like your machine's radioactive. Oh, my God. Yes. Like, ah, I don't even want to touch it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my so, good friend Patrick Hines says in Richards 2, convenience is the enemy of security. Mm -hmm. yes. That's so true. Very much so. People yeah. ask me, often ask me, why, why is security so hard? Why is it so hard with multi-factor authentication and uh, password managers? Why does security has to be, have to be so hard? And it's like, well, if it's <laughs> not hard and complicated, it's not very secure. Why do we need a lock right. on the door? Well, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I have to well, unlock I have it. all these steps. And a deadbolt? What's that What's about? That all about? Now I have two <laughs> keys? Oh, man. Can I just have a sign that says, please do not Can't enter? the door just open yeah. when I go right. up to it? I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's very, very valid uh, points on all of this. Well, I, I love that we've set a sort of landscape around, you know, Terraform, Bicep, Pulumi. But in the end, there's no Nirvana, like, except the one you build. The tools aren't going to save you. Mm. 
I, I actually wrote the world's longest blog series about this, and every blog post ended up being a, a minor book. I was told that several times. <laughs> uh, and I, I went through what is DevOps, or sorry, what is infrastructure code, and then I showed how to do, do an infrastructure. And I built the same infrastructure with PowerShell or Azure CLI, and then with ARM, and then with Bicep, and then with Terraform, and then with Pulumi, uh, with TypeScript. And I, I had this clear idea when I started my blog post that, I'm going to go through all the steps and then on the last page, I'm going to do a conclusion and I'm going to say that it's really nice that Bicep and Terraform are trying, but Pulumi is so much better than everything. <laughs> didn't turn out like that because right. uh, there, there are caveats with all of them. Yeah. There's As long as you know it, it's okay, but there isn't a silver bullet. They all have pros and cons. You just need to know the pros and cons in what you select. But I'm pretty sure whichever one of those three you, you choose or potentially Farmer if you're an F-sharp person, uh, I, I think you're going to be happy because it, it, a lot of the stress is going to go out the window and it's not going to be stressful as stressful to do your releases and things like that once everything is automated. Very good. Absolutely. Yeah, it feels like the end of the show. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we go, Chris? No, nah, not really. I, I think I've covered most of it. If anybody wants to say, sort of have a chat about infrastructure as code, I, I think my Twitter nick is going to be somewhere or so and you can contact me on, on Twitter's um, and I'd be happy to chat with you guys, anybody who's interested. That's great. Thanks, Chris. It's been great talking to you and thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.